Today's reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Jesus announces the good news. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus calls his first disciples. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Excellent, excellent. By the way, if you're looking after little ones, I've got a mic, sound desk, got volume control. I'm going to win in a noise contest, so it's just not a problem, okay? If you need to get up, go for a walk around. I mean, even some of the older ones. If you need to get up and go for a walk, I won't be offended. Um, uh, please, but don't worry. Just get up, walk around, make a noise. It's cool. It's fine. Great. Well, it's lovely to have the opportunity to talk to you, to those who are watching on the live stream, and obviously for all of you uh, here in the building. And thank you to Lorraine for uh, reading us that passage where... Um, from the book of Mark, in the very first chapter, we hear about Jesus giving this invitation, this call, if you like, uh, to Simon and Andrew, and then to James and, and to John. Now, the book of Mark, which is quite a short one, it's pacey. It's pacey, honestly. It's like first scene of the movie, boo, straight in. No mucking about. What he's all about is... Who is this Jesus, and what does it mean that he died and rose again? Who is this Jesus, what does it mean that he died and rose again? And in exploring that and in explaining it, it kind of points the way to what does it actually mean to follow Jesus, to respond as Simon and Andrew did and James and John did. So that's what we're going to have a take a look at in the next 15, well, 17 minutes when I timed it earlier. We'll see what happens. Somebody's probably got the stopwatch running already. That's an extra 10 seconds just to explain it. Okay. Now, the thing is, if you were just to go back, just to go back a few verses right to the very first lines of what Mark wrote, you would find this description of John the Baptist, this guy that looked weird that behaved completely outside the norm. He was out on the streets. He was out in the towns and villages outside Jerusalem. He was saying to people, look, make God your priority. Make God your focus. And uh, in doing that, he had this kind of symbolic act whereby he was taking people to the River Jordan and giving them a good dunking down under the water to symbolize the washing away of all the stuff they've been focusing on apart from God and then up, out, washed clean to represent a new focus to keep God their focus. And people were coming from all around and it was all kicking off. 
big crowds, loads of people getting dunked. Now here in this very building, just a few weeks ago, the place was rammed, I think we had 10 people getting baptized, and for many people, that feels like, well, that's kind of part of the rhythm of life here, that's kind of what people do when they want to show their commitment to following Jesus. It's hard for us to understand just how radical, how different, and how not accepted what John the Baptist was doing when we read about it in these first few verses of Mark's Gospel. Because back in the day, first century AD Israel, modern day Israel, for the Jewish people, if you wanted to go and worship God, if you wanted to go and meet with other people like this, you had to go to the temple. And for these people where they lived, you went to the temple in Jerusalem, you went there, and when you got there, I guess people like me, people like him, the vicar, and others, dressed in their fancy garb, that's not a comment on uh, what Alan's wearing today, but um, dressed in their fancy kit, you would go where they told you to go, you wouldn't go where they said you can't go, because not everybody could go everywhere in the temple, you would say what you were allowed to say and you would do exactly what they said and there was a hierarchy of priests that had all gone to the fancy rabbi schools and learnt what they had to learn. And where was John in all this? Nowhere. Was he part of them? No. Did he go to the temple in Jerusalem? No. Did the temple priests and the hierarchy in the established order of the day, did they like what John was doing? Did they say, oh goody, somebody with the same objectives, the same passion, the same heart that we have, he's getting people to focus on God. Whoopee. No, they went apoplectic. I just like that word. They went, they were furious. They went ape. They were absolutely incensed and they really didn't like it because people and organizations who kind of have control and like the way things are done often don't react well. When people even with the same objectives go and do things a different way. And what did Jesus do when he saw John doing what he was doing? He went and joined in. He went and joined in. So how do you think the authorities felt about Jesus? Didn't like it much, did they? The thing that the disciples, those first followers of Jesus, the th one of the first things that they were going to learn when they responded to that call was that every assumption they had about who they were going to meet in life, how they were going to respond to them, and how they were going to do life, all their assumptions, all their expectations were going to get shot to pieces. They were just going to get shot to pieces. It was going to surprise them and shock them. And it was going to be different. That was the first thing they were going to walk into when they accepted the call. And in fact, if you read on in the book of Mark, so much of the story is of Jesus guiding, yes, but sometimes having to chide them or intervene really quite forcefully to say you haven't got it you're not getting this you're really not getting this 
Because the first followers of Jesus, Simon and Andrew, James and John and the others, they understood that Jesus was doing some things that meant God was taking charge in a new way. By the way, just as an aside, when I say taking charge, that is different from control. That's a subject for another day. Maybe Alan, you know. Control is something different. Jesus doesn't do control. Jesus invites. Jesus gives an example. But anyway, those first followers, they understood that Jesus was doing something new, that God somehow was taking charge. But not this way. They understood the phrase, the kingdom of God, was a kind of well-known slogan at the time. The kingdom of God simply... God coming and living in you and me and then the result of when we let him live through us. That's the kingdom of God coming. But not like this. Not like this. Not with John dressed in his wacky clothes and his leather belt, eating wacky food. Nothing to do with the establishment. What's going on? And in fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, you see one of Jesus' interventions, and Alan's already talked about it. They're walking along, and some of these first followers are having the conversation. Who's going to be top dog, eh? Who's going to be the big banana amongst us? I think it's going to be me. One of the others said, well, actually, thanks for your contribution, but I think, actually, it might be me. Somebody else saying, well, actually, uh I think it might be me. And Jesus says, stop it. I, Jesus, have come here to serve. And those that follow me will do likewise, will serve. It's the second thing that they were going to encounter when they said yes to following Jesus. We're here to serve. If you're after the best seats in the house, like he often said, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are the guys in the fancy kit in the synagogue, nice high-profile seats, best seats in the house. It's not what we're about. It's not, we've come to serve, to serve. And then later on, what they were going to find out, of course, they didn't know what was coming at the moment. They said yes, but later on in Mark chapter 15, 16, Jesus dies. Jesus dies and then comes back to life. And look, ultimately, and it's kind of appropriate that I'm looking at this table in front of us because what I'm about to describe and what we will do when we share the bread and wine, it's a story of love. It is a story of self-giving love. What they were to discover when Jesus died was that Jesus, like John the Baptist, was sending this invitation, look, make me your focus. Make your Father in heaven your focus. All this other stuff that you allow yourself to focus on, and in by doing so you give power to, and there's nothing new under the sun. A real focus on power, on sex, on money, on status, on just pursuing things that give you a short-term buzz but can lead to all kinds of complications and difficulties in life. Jesus is saying, look, I want to take all the power that stuff has over you 
and I want to take it and I'm going to stand in your place and I'm going to free you from that. And he allowed the authorities of the day to kill him. This self-giving love that worked through suffering. Alan's already prayed and spoken about suffering. Many of you here today understand suffering. Your lives have been touched by it. I don't need to tell you that. Jesus didn't end suffering. He worked through suffering. And as Alan prayed earlier, his promise is that in your suffering, just as in his, his Father in heaven will be alongside you and will work through you and will never leave you. And then in his resurrection, when he came back to life, he broke the power that all those things can have over us. All those things, the power, the sex, the money, the following our own agendas, blah de blah de blah And when I say he broke it and he won this victory, and I'll come back to that, when he died, he was put in a tomb, big thick walls, massive stone around it. He was put in a tomb and he literally rose and left it. He simply left it because even death, all those things that we put our trust in sometimes rather than him, even death itself literally could not contain him. He overcame any power they have. And he gives us that victory that we don't have to fear it. He can release us from anything that we are struggling with. But here was this story. Firstly, those first followers were going to be hit by all their assumptions about who they were going to meet and how they were going to do life. All their assumptions and expectations were going to be shaken up. Then they learned about being servants. And then in Jesus' death and his resurrection, they learned about suffering and self-giving love. And that's how Jesus frees us. They were also going to learn a fourth thing. That the way that victory, and by victory I mean Jesus overcoming the power of those things that can distract us from focusing on him, right up until death itself. That victory that Jesus won is going to be implemented by you and me and the followers of Jesus exactly the same way. How could we ever believe it would be any other way? Through suffering sometimes, through self-giving love, that is how those first followers of Jesus would implement the victory that he has won. And that is the invitation and the call that he leaves with us too, today. Victories are often hard won. You know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I've kind of known some of this in my head for many years. But a few years ago, it's sort of, you know when you kind of experience something and it's sort of 
as people often say, what you know goes from kind of headspace and there's a kind of almost audible clunk and you sort of get it. And I sort of got it. And I got it on a family summer holiday. Now, I don't know what planning family summer holidays for you guys is like when you have the opportunity to go on a holiday. Our family kind of divides into two where half the family likes to have a plan. <laughs> there was a hand in the front row. Some of the, I'm not mentioning any names, but some of my family, led by my wife, likes to have a plan. <laughs> and if we go to a new town or village, if we have not walked every street, if we've not visited every historical monument and covered every square inch, we haven't done the town. There is an alternative perspective led by myself and my son, which is the thing we like about a plan is for it to be blank, for flexibility, for chilling time. Anyway, in amongst these family negotiations some years ago when our James and Katie were in their teenage years, we were working out, trying to work out, well, what should we do? And then I introduced a subject to them. I said, listen, there's something that I've always wanted to do at some point in my life. It's probably not going to be top of most people's lists of what to do on their summer holiday. But why not now? Why not with you? Why not together? And I was a bit surprised when they said yes. So the first port of call on this summer holiday is we went to the Polish town of Krakow in southern Poland. If any of you have been there, don't know whether we've got any Poles in the, uh, in the building today. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a beautiful medieval, old medieval town. It's got the most amazing square. Whatever plan you have, just go sit there, have a beer, have a coffee. It's, it's fantastic. Great people, very friendly. But if any of you have ever been to Krakow, you will also know why a lot of people go there. Because only about 10 minutes or 15 minutes away in a short bus ride or taxi ride, you can go to Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp of the Second World War. And that's where we went. And it provoked many meaningful conversations, as you can imagine. But I was struck then, and I've always been struck by it ever since, that alongside the terrible story of Auschwitz and that probably testimony to man's inhumanity to man, another story ran in parallel to it. Because in 1939, a young German man, who's become a hero of mine, a young German man at the outbreak of war, one of the most brilliant minds of his generation, found himself in the USA. Now you might say, whoa, Stroke of luck. He's in a place of relative safety and security with all the mayhem that's going on in his mother country and across Europe. But as the weeks pass, this German man decides that, no, he's, he's got a nudge, he's got a call. He can't stay in the safety and security of the US. And he decides that he's going to return to his mother country and he's going to return to Germany. And he's going to continue the work that he has as a teacher and a pastor 
And he knows that in continuing that work that he is going to have to speak out, along with like-minded Germans, he's going to have to speak out against what Hitler and the Nazis are doing. And he has no doubt about where that might lead. He went. The authorities duly arrested him and put him in prison. And on April the 9th, 1945, simply days, a handful of days, before the American army liberated the concentration camp at Fossenberg, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's captors took him from his cell and they killed him. An ultimate example in the man in his context of sacrifice, of suffering, and of self-giving love. His writings, letters from prison, make for profound reading. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as I've said, is a hero of mine. Look, his story is not my story. His context is not my context. His story is not your story. But he does remind us of something that Simon and Andrew, James and John came to understand as they responded to that first call of Jesus. That among it all, among it all that sometimes living through suffering and living out a life of self-giving love is how we implement this victory that Jesus has won for each one of us. Shall we pray? And if Stephen and wants to come up, Kirsty too. Father, as we reflect, we just take a moment, Father, well, to thank you for what you have done for each one of us. Help us to be open, Father, to hear you and see you when you take us to places and to people that might surprise us. I pray that that heart of being a servant to others will be our inheritance and that the joy of living out a life of self-giving love watched over by you, Lord, even when we go through times of suffering. I pray your blessing on each and every person here, whether listening online, whether here in person, I pray you will know Jesus' presence in the practicalities of your day-to-day -day lives, and you'll let him lead you through whatever times, whatever circumstances you face right now. 